Ladies and gentlemen, at half past seven on a Friday night, welcome to episode 72 of Aid Thompson and Other Disappointments. My guest this week, uh, you may have seen him on the stages of the LA Comedy Store. Uh, you may also be familiar with his work as an award-winning and much-celebrated commentator of Poker Stars. Uh, my guest tonight, I know him from uh, treading the same boards uh, in the London comedy circuit. Um, my guest tonight, please welcome Joe Stapleton. Woo! Hey, thanks for having me. By the way, when he says you may have seen me at the comedy store, that, I mean, I think I've been definitely spent more time in the audience of the comedy store than on stage. So if you were there for a total of 45 minutes over my entire 11 year career, that would be the amount of time I've been on stage at the comedy you're store so, so you're so modest like if i had even set like one toe on stage at the la comedy store i'd never shut up about it it would be in my intro for everything it's it's just a stolen valor thing like there's different levels of having performed at the la comedy store and there's the comedians at this level when they see the comedian at this level being like i played the comedy store they're like no you didn't this is playing the comedy store yeah. so um, i'm just trying to i'm just trying to temper temper if any of those guys tunes in they're like all right by a technicality you have performed at the top comedy store but don't go around saying it yeah well that's 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 a yeah decent of you um i i i mean my ego would get in the way but also like i think like when you've played the london comedy store and or you've even been in the audience of the london comedy store you assume that the la comedy store would be kind of similar in the sense that it's just one room like the london comedy store is just like a stage and then you know audience all surrounding it the la comedy store from what i understand is like isn't there like fucking four rooms or five rooms there's there's three rooms but part of it is that only one of the rooms is the real room right. so there's there's the belly room and no offense but like the belly room is like oh yeah you oh, you play the comedy store i bet it was the belly room right right and and i did the belly room the first two or three times i did the comedy store then there's the original room Right. And the original room feels like the room. Like it feels like okay. the room. It's got like the, the, the names on the walls and neon lights and um, and it faces out to Sunset Boulevard. And so I've done the original room like a dozen times or so. Um, I think that's, that's worth mentioning. You should. Yeah, I don't think you need to temper that a dozen. But times, then hold good. on. Hold on. If, if we're really getting nitty gritty here, this might be boring. This fucking comedy shop talk. There is being asked. There's like being a, a regular at the comedy store where you play the original room. There's being asked by the comedy store to do a guest spot or to get up on stage. Then there's something called like a like a book out show where a producer just rents the original room for the night. Right. And fills it with their own people and does like a door split with the comedy store. Those are the gigs that I have done I at see. the comedy store. Like comedy store manager has no idea who I am. I performed in front of the manager. He's not the manager anymore. I performed in front of the manager at the Monday night potluck. They this thing where like it's like uh, Monday night open mic and like you perform in front of the manager and uh, 200 people sign up and eight get in. And I got in one time and the fucking guy didn't look up from his. He was like doing Sudoku in the back. He didn't look up even one time during my set. And all the other comedians who are there hate you. So they're sitting there not laughing at your shit. It was one of the worst comedy experiences I ever had in my life was oh, actually th was performing in front, like in front of management there. However, the other times I've gone there, I fucking, for the most part, really crushed. And, and what counts more, honestly, uh, making one guy doing Sudoku laugh or like making a whole room of full of people who overpaid for their drinks laugh. Yeah, right. And as, as long as you had a good gig, you enjoyed yourself. That's I think that's all that matters. Fuck the Sudoku guy, you know. That's right. Uh, let's let's back up a little bit, Joe, because um, sure. you know some of the some of the listeners or viewers might not be familiar with your work on uh, on Poker Stars. Uh, I obviously you and I came into to contact with each other through stand up. Um, let's spool all the way back. Like, how do you get into something as specific as poker? Like, how how did that happen? You know, it was just as simple as I was a guy who moved to L.A. to be a a, a comedy writer slash comedian. And, um, excuse me. Oh boy. I was, if only I was a burp comic, that would, would have worked out really well, but I'm actually just kind of embarrassed about that. Um, so, uh, I ended up, you know, as many people do just getting a job in television production and it just happened to be a comedy TV show. I was a production assistant and then I sort of moved up a couple of levels on, on that side. 
And uh, I was kind of just spinning my wheels as a comedy thing, but I was making decent money and was having fun. I was 22 years old, living in Los Angeles, making like 60 grand a year in 2004. Pretty good. And so I was like, you know, not super hungry or motivated to do anything else. And then a buddy of mine got a job as a reporter for the summer at the World Series of Poker. And he asked me if I would drive him to Vegas to drop him off. And I said, sure. And when I got there, they said to him, hey, uh, before we let you, uh, you know, I was like, bye. He's like, hold on a second. Do you know anyone else who can write? And he's like, oh, yeah, my buddy over there, he can write. And uh, we had been playing poker very casually for the last year or two, uh, just amongst friends for $5 each. And I had this like little newsletter I used to write every week to like advertise my home game. Like, here's what happened last week. Here's a couple of it was right. um, it was the, 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 the home game was like probably like 18, 19 people. And it was half straight guys and half gay guys. Right. And we used to I used to put like a couple of gay innuendo into the into the email to like entertain everybody looking back on it, probably cringe. But uh, at the time, you know, like I said, it was 2004. Nobody really cared about stuff like that. So sure. uh, 2004 is like basically still 1999 is the point I'm trying to uh, to drive out here. Right. So, yeah. So um, and then they hired me on the spot and. Uh, I, I bounced back and forth the next couple of years between the TV show called Mad TV uh, and uh, and poker. And then one one day in poker, they said to me, look, we want to do a poker podcast and we want you to host it full time and we're going to pay you 50 grand a year. But um, you only have your only job is to produce one podcast a week for like 30 of those weeks. And you're going to travel on tour with us. All expenses paid. And and the show is 100% yours. Uh, you're the host. You're the executive producer. Yes, you have bosses, but no one is going to tell you what to do on this show. So like, complete, other than like complete creative freedom. Complete creative freedom uh, other than, you know, upsetting the corporate sponsors, right? But like, I did not have a boss on the show. Um, and for the most part, they let me do what I wanted. And uh, so I quit. I quit television for that. Um, That's amazing. Because I suppose like the cliche is that when you're doing your own thing, uh, that then when the suits, if you like, come knocking and saying like, why don't you come and, you know, produce a podcast for us? And like, you would think that then there was going to be some like interference that they wouldn't let you do stuff that they would start telling you which catchphrases to use and, and that kind of shit. So that's awesome that they just let you kind of run with it. Yeah, it was it was such early doors for there being content as a thing like you know now everyone understands that even if you're like fucking craft macaroni and cheese like you should have a podcast like you should have content about it like whatever <laughs> it is because so it was back before that so you know these companies didn't even really understand how important having content was uh so they didn't really fuck with me too much um so yeah it's not like again you there's always someone who is gonna you know tell you what to do I would just say they told me more often what not to do rather than what to do, if that makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. And their their requests for what not to do were very reasonable. Um, so it was never like an issue. Like the dumber, like the dumber I made things, the more they thought it was hilarious. Like my 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 boss would just laugh hysterically at the dumbest shit I would do. If I completely screwed up like a guest's name or like asked them a question that was like completely wrong for them like just said like oh so you're a world series of poker bracelet winner and they'd be like no i'm not and i'd be like oh shit my bosses thought that was hilarious so <laughs> i really got away with and that's partly why to this day my brand is fucking up that's as in like like not your brand is fucked but kind of like your brand is colon like fucking up <laughs> exactly because like i don't so i've never been really that good at, at being polished and about um not making mistakes or not saying jokes that's you know I, i'm a pretty funny guy but like one out of every x number of jokes i tell just like hits the floor like a ton of bricks so i've just early on figured out a way like okay being unpolished and occasionally just dropping a real clanker like that's your brand and yeah. just lean into that i've there's, been very lucky to like get away with that there's a real uh like skill to that in terms of like and it's i guess it's something that you probably learned being a comic but I found like the longer I did stand up, I found different ways to kind of make the fuck up 
like the the joke itself like yes. you, you thought that the punchline was going to be fucking hilarious and then it dies and then you you managed to turn the fact that it died into the thing that everyone finds funny you know well for example i have this bit now about how i'm bad in bed and <laughs> the last joke that i'm building toward genuinely never gets the response i want it to and right. then all of a sudden i was like that's it. Like, that's the joke. Like, and now you know what it's like having sex with me, not giving the response. I feel like my performance was worthy of is literally what this whole bit is about. So now that's the new end to the joke. Uh, instead of, instead of like, da, 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 silence, it's da, 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 silence. And now, you know what I've been talking about this whole time. <laughs> and the audience really comes on board for that. Yeah. Yeah, it's very meta. It's like sort of going levels deep. Like this, I know you thought I was going to crack a joke here, but actually, this entire routine is just a metaphor for my sexual performance. <laughs> Correct, which is you know fine. Yeah. Uh, okay, so so then you stuck with the the podcast and uh, things have been going well, but the whole time you've been doing stand up comedy as well. Not the whole time. So again, to go back to the beginning, I wanted to be a comedian, but I didn't do stand up comedy. I actually did stand-up comedy for the first time ever at the comedy store in the original room because one of the Fuck. cast members of the show I worked on forced me to go. Um, and it was as awful as you can imagine. It was terrible, but I, I found it so um, traumatizing that I didn't do it again for many, many years. It wasn't until like 2010 I did it again. Do you, when you say it was awful, it was traumatizing, you mean like you did a, what, five spot and you thought it was going to go, like it was great material, but then it tanked, like you died on your ass or? No, it was, a, I think it was a three minute spot that um, it was bad material and I tanked and I blacked out up there and <laughs> I ran the light because I had blacked out and, um, Yes, and do it was you, just... Do you remember any of the material that you did? Yes. I remember doing a joke about working on a TV show and my grandma not understanding that there was a difference between working on a TV show and being on a TV show. Right. And she would always be like, I'm watching now, I don't see you. And I'm like, well, first of all, Graham, I work behind the scenes. Second of all, like, is that MASH? I think you're watching a show that went off the air in the 70s. So, you know, it's like, okay. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not great. But then also I'm just like shaking and nervous up yeah. there and forgetting parts of it. And there's no, like, even that way, I just delivered it as a very confident, we'll say late 30s year old person. Um, it was nothing compared to what I did up there. So, you know, it's just... My best friend described it. I said he said it was like childbirth. He's like he said it was ugly and beautiful at the same time. Yeah. Here's what's fucked though. It's like if you if you got up there now as a relatively polished comic, do you think you could do the same material and somehow make it work? I think I could do more or less the same material and have it not die completely. Yes. And oddly enough, I've been going through all of my old notebooks now. Uh, from that era to be like, did I have anything that was actually pretty good concept? I just wasn't very good at uh, at being a comedian then. And there's a couple of things I dug out. I dug out this one bit about um, how uh, so, like, you know, you've moved house before. And every time you move house, you like go around to all your friends. You can just start be begging for boxes from people. Right. Like every yeah. like, oh, you got any boxes? You go into stores and it's embarrassing. So there's one time I was moving and I was like, I'm not doing it this time. I'm just going to buy containers right like i'm gonna buy plastic containers i'm gonna the container store i'm gonna buy all how much could it possibly cost and then you get to the container store and all the the sizes are off like they're all listed uh, in in fluid it's like <laughs> oh i don't i don't yeah. know how many gallons of dvds i own like i don't know how many of these to buy and so that's a joke that kind of works there's too much build up i'm seeing right now but you know like how many gallons of dvds that's something i wrote like back in 2008 or something like that that i think i could yeah figure could, out a way to make funny now you, you could see the like the observational quality to it there's some currency to it you could definitely yeah you could do something with it i found like i think my first gig literally my first ever gig was at uh southwark rooms which you may or may not know sort of near south bank in uh, like waterloo kind of area and uh and there was like three people in the audience and then comedians and i went up up 
on stage and I was like trying to be a sort of like white Chris Rock but like with his cadences and everything like no I didn't Ooh, do uh, I, interesting I didn't full on do I mean I was clearly I was just a massive Chris Rock fan but um I didn't do like an American accent or anything but I, it was like that sort of almost I actually don't think that's the worst way to go about it like it's obviously cringe now right Yeah um but you're never going to be the person that you are that first time on stage anyway and if taking on a persona and if like doing an homage to someone it, granted as long as you're not straight up just doing an impression like yeah. i think is i don't think it's the worst way to get up there and get it under your belt the first time like i would actually tell a lot of people so i, I run some open mics uh, occasionally at poker events so they're like community open mics not really like people trying to be comedians i'm like everyone's welcome to get up if you don't have any material just tell a joke, like tell a street joke. And I genuinely think that for people's first time, if that's you just want to go up there and tell a street joke, that's totally fine. Like, so this Chris Rock thing, how did it go? Fucking terrible. It was so <laughs> bad. It was like, I, I, I was doing a material. Um, so the reason I asked you, like, if you remembered your material from that, it's firstly, like, yeah. it, it's so long ago, right, that you would think that you would have forgotten it. But because these things are so traumatizing, yeah. you don't ever forget the shit that you tried that failed, just tanked. And I was doing some, like, five-minute thing about Britney Spears was having a, like, full-on meltdown at the time. And it was something to do with a shoehorn or oh, I can't remember now. It was objectively not funny. Uh, and, and how old were you, by the way? I was, I think, about 29. Uh, so kind of old to just try stand up yeah. at that time. But then I'd just come out of a like quite serious relationship and I was, like all of my friends were pairing up. And so my social life dis disappeared. I was that guy. I was like, fuck, well, like, I guess. And, you were uh, just being born again. Yeah. like, But you know what? Even as bad as it went. I still took something from it. I was like, oh, I really fucking loved that. Like it was like, I knew it had gone bad. That's great. But I, I did not feel that way. Did you not? Were you like, I'm, no. I'm never going to do it again? Or The thought of doing it again, like even if I drove past a place and it would have a sign for an open mic, like I would get sick to my stomach. <laughs> and it's not until, I will say this, I've been doing it. So I don't count those early years, right? I only count from when I started taking it semi-seriously to right. seriously and that's right before i moved to the uk um it's like about 2012 so at this point i've been doing it for 10 years i am finally 10 years i've opened for norm mcdonald okay i've done some cool shit in my life up until it's not until the post pandemic that i don't get sick to my stomach every single time really? i'm about to get handed the microphone yeah now still sometimes just not every single time Here's a weird question for you. Yeah. You, to me, you come off as not just a, like a polished comic, but obviously quite a confident guy. So do you get that? Because I get that from people. They go, like, oh, you're so confident. You're so outgoing. And, you say, and I'm like, I am a fucking ball of nerve. I'm shaking before I go on stage. I'm so nervous. But do you get the same shit from people where they go, but you're so confident. You're so outgoing. But you're still kind of like me in that respect. Yeah, the, I guess it, it definitely that happens. Um, it depends on the situation. Like, obviously, at this point, like doing po poker commentary, I am that person. I am that confident. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are certain moments I still get nervous even doing that, like at, at the end of an event where I have to interview a winner and there's really only one shot to do and it's their moment and I don't really want to fuck it up for them. Um, I get nervous doing that. But yeah, going on stage. But the, the thing, I guess, and you can tell me where yours is, the second my first joke hits, I am that person like I'm in like that's it. That's all I needed. But like if that first joke doesn't hit or doesn't hit the way I think it should or th that that person there that that those two wolves yeah, fight yeah. for a lot longer. And um, and and I will say that oftentimes the audience doesn't know it, but that's why the set's not that good. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, I, I, I can relate a lot to that. I, I find it depends if I'm doing new material, which I, when I was gigging a lot, then I did do a lot of new material, and so I think the output of that was that then before most gigs, I was really nervous because my uh, trend, if you like, so, was to always yeah, be so trying new. Shit, I have right? people that come out to all my gigs, 
like uh, fr- friends slash fans. Well, like even, the so new, I, even when you try new ideas, you take mates out. No, because I, I don't. So I do open mics of one thing. Right. And then I basically just have one gig in L.A. I do once a month. Right. And I get the same 10 or 12 people that always come. And I'm like, I can't do the same 10 minutes for them. So I'm always, always, always doing new ish material. And I'm like, fuck, why do I do this to myself? Why am I thinking about like, why did I just do the thing I did last time that absolutely crushed? And so I, I'm sorry I interrupted, but I, I, I do the same thing where I make it as difficult on myself as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Same. But then I, I also feel like because I, I became a father and then I went back into doing a few gigs and, and shit and because time became just infinitely more precious it was like, if I'm going to go out and do like one gig a week, which is what it sort of came down to, if that's my one night of freedom, I don't want to fucking waste it doing the same shit five minutes week in, week out. Like I want to just con- like slog it, try some new shit every week, just tick the bits that work, cross off the bits that don't, and then, you know, gradually build up that 15 or 20 minute set again. Um, but Totally understandable. But the problem with that is that sometimes you cross something off that um, actually could work really well if you put a little work into it like my big closer right now that like uh is is Wait, something the, that the, I, the i'm shit in bed isn't the big closer no <laughs> no uh I, but uh, the, the big closer is something um that that i did five or six times at open mic and never got the response that i wanted it to and i was like i know there's something here i'm not going to give up on this bit and i did it you know, I just wasn't just I think a mistake a lot of comedians make is they just do the same bit word for word um, all over again and just think yeah. magically somehow it's going to be different. Uh, and I was tweaking it every time. And finally, one time I I, I got the reaction I wanted out of uh, the open mic audience. And now if at, with at every important gig I do, this bit is in there, if not how I close the show out. Yeah, and there's a, there's such a beauty in in taking a really difficult concept because like how often do you actually just get struck by lightning and you go like oh fuck that's an amazing joke and I can see the mechanics of it and it will just work perfectly like sometimes that happens and you're like yeah. oh today was a good day but like a lot of the time it's just like ah oh, there's something in that there's a concept there oh maybe I'll just and if it's a difficult concept or a different difficult um string of words to hear you know for the to to make it funny if it's a challenging idea there's a real like when you do finally craft it and hone it and make it into the thing that you always thought maybe it could be and it explodes like the room just comes to life it's like ah i fucking love this shit (laughs) yeah i mean that's that's really the the well all we're really after i i feel like twitter has kind of fucked us up for comedy a little bit in that we're so like one of the things I get wrong that luckily I've had some I've asked some friends, please, we watch myself, please. I'll take any constructive criticism. I, you know, I, I do fine. Right. But I just never get any constructive criticism. Like another set of eyes on this would probably really help. And one of the things my very funny friend uh, named Emily Browning, who actually does this for a living, like you can you can like hire to do it was like you're really, really smart and you expect the audience to be as smart as you are. And she's not even being insulting. She's like, sometimes you completely gloss over these concepts and premises because you know what it is and they might not. And you're like in such a hurry to get to the punchline. I don't even think they know what the setup is yet. And so, and I think that's because of Twitter, right? Like I can't, I don't want to give like three lines of context before, before a tweet, Especially because everyone's already like in the know, right? To begin yeah. with, like you don't need like if it's a Chris Rock, Will Smith joke right now, you don't have to, you don't have to put that in there. So I always expect the audience to be as informed as maybe a Twitter da- daily Twitter user is, and so I gloss over these things. Uh, and there's comedy to be had in the setup too. So that's one thing I've learned recently is, hey, even if you, even if you. No, even if you think the audience knows what NFTs are, explain it and make a joke about that too, because no one's not going to laugh because they already know what it is. Yeah, yeah, that's a big thing. I mean, you and your, uh, your was it your friend or sort of colleague? Did you say? Yeah, friend, friend, also, yeah, both colleague. I yeah. feel like you're being way kinder than I would be. Like I, I'm that guy who cracks a joke, 
who then thinks that the audience are going to laugh and maybe like four or five people in the audience out of like 20 laugh and then i come away from that gig thinking most people are fucking morons aid like that's they just didn't get me you know like and that's the wrong yeah, attitude mean, to have it should like i should adopt the same attitude as your yeah. friend where it's like you sometimes you need to contextualize shit or build up a little bit or you know correct and i also just think um of all of the times now i've been very lucky i've bombed very few times in my life right very few times but of those times let's say i've bombed 10 times in my life i take the under on that but let's say it was 10 of those how many of them can i genuinely blame the audience two yeah two of those times um and when i when i say blame the audience i mean like the room was too hot and like no one was having fun and the audience sucked probably two or three of those 10 times like the rest of the time it was me like yeah, yeah. people comedians are fucking whack I, like I, I i'm sure it's the same in london but in la like most comedians get off stage and they say they killed when it was fine <laughs> yeah yeah Everyone or they loves say to they bombed and it was great and you're like what yeah what reality are you living on like and i feel like i come from a, a, a like normal place where i get off stage i go that's pretty good i've done better that wasn't yeah. terrible. That was fine. I don't think I've ever really like, you know, when people say, oh, that guy, like he, he didn't just crush it. He murdered that. You know, I don't think I've ever done that. I think I'd feel like I was overselling my skills, my chops. As a Is comedian. that an English thing or you genuinely don't think you've ever. So what would you call the best night that you've ever had? You did what? Uh, I had I've done a few gigs like where like the audience have been as you say like sort of you know fine like people have laughed yeah. at my jokes and stuff and a couple of people in the audience have been like you know not you genuinely think you've never crushed I, I honestly don't know like I've never come away from a room thinking I've nobody can follow me nobody can jump on okay that, that's you know? different it's different okay so it's all like subjective things right you've never gone off stage and been like I fucking crushed that. Like that was awesome. I just I know that I nailed that. I've I've got off stage and I'll tell you the nearest thing I've got to that is like I've come off stage thinking that new bit fucking that was good. That's going in the set. And then as I've walked from the stage to the bar, like people have come up to me and gone like strangers have shaken my hand yeah. and said like that was fucking great mate, like wicked like and then I feel like full of confidence and like like I've done something good and maybe not everyone can do this and that's great. But I don't come away from it thinking like I'm some sort of rock star stand up, which is how I imagine I would feel if I truly, you know, people. No, this feels like English. No, (laughs) this feels like an English thing coming into play. Um, I remember living there. It's so funny. Like I would just be like in a business meeting. I'd be like, look, this is something I'm really good at. I'm very good at this particular thing. And people would be like, (gasps) and I'd be like, what what do you, people are so (laughs) mad that you say, I'm like, no, I'm good at this. This is why I'm in this meeting. Like, this is why I'm here. And um, I I think that you probably have crushed before aid. It doesn't mean there's a difference between walking off stage and going like, Hey, that was for me. That was a 10 out of 10. You don't have to think you're God's gift of comedy. You don't have to think you're better than anyone else. You have to think that no one can follow you, but you can go, Hey, that was five bags of popcorn right there. And look again, of the I don't know how many gigs I've done in my life. Let's say five hundred. It's definitely not a, a, a ton. Um, you know, I've thought, oh my god, I crushed that maybe ten of those times, but I've definitely, yeah, definitely felt it. Yeah, I don't know, man. Like maybe maybe it is an English thing. Like I, I when when I went to We Are Funny Project a few must have been about three or four years ago. Uh, there was an American girl on there one night and I'm never going to remember her name. And if if somebody tells me it afterwards, I'll gladly put it in the comments and shit. But um, and she did a joke about uh, how when she first came over from the States, she came over uh, from a culture of like positivity and optimism. And she said, like, yeah, you know, if somebody comes up to you in the States and says, like, oh, I like I like your hair or I like your dress. Then you turn around and you go like, yeah, thanks. I like it, too. Like that. And she said, like, when she came over to London and somebody said, like, oh, I like your dress. She was like, yeah, it's great, isn't it? And they were like, Ugh. like, by the way, I just want to say, is that Liz Guterbach? I haven't. I could because Liz is a good friend of mine, and if that is her bit, and I didn't mention her name, then that would be make me a very bad friend. I... I was like friends with a with like the the other American, especially girl comedians, uh, when I lived over there. So Chelsea, the opera singer, was a good friend of mine for a while. 
and then Liz Guterbach. Uh, and there must have been at least one other American girl who I'm feeling bad about. I could not remember I go- now. But- I'll Google Liz. Hold on. Let's just check if it's her. You'd recognize her if you saw her. Liz. This is like Rogan right now, except you're your own guy on the computer. <laughs> yeah, I can't fucking afford a producer. That's why. <laughs> Liz Gudebach. I'm not getting anything. You can't, you can't just make up names, Joe. Come on. Yeah, right. It does sound made up. It does sound made up. She had a couple of bits. She did a bit that I was jealous about, about how small the uh, the clothes dryers are in the UK and how they like don't really even do anything. <laughs> like, I'm just like, what is what is what's happening here? It's, just, it's like they they just made it impossible for you to not hang your clothes all over your apartment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm coming to London next week, and I have a gig uh, on Friday the 8th, and I get to dust off. I had like a whole half hour. So basically, I just want to, if I could do like a love letter to London really quick. Yeah, sure. I I didn't really start taking comedy seriously till I moved to London. Uh, okay. I had moved over to work on the European Poker Tour. My, my work schedule was really light. I was like, for years, you've been telling yourself you're a comedian. You don't fucking do stand-up. You're a fraud. Get out there and become a stand-up comedian. And my God, if, if, if if, I know that like most stand-up comedians come from like a place of relative privilege because they get to choose stand-up comedy. If you have rich parents, have them send you to London to do stand-up comedy because audiences there want to laugh. They still appreciate the arts. Yeah. They're happy for a free comedy show in LA. If your show is free, people are like, Oh, what's wrong with it? Why is it free? Yeah. Um, people get drunk and, yep. you know, sometimes that can be a problem, but for the most part, it's pretty great. There's a great sense of humor. And then I got to get away with all of this super lame, like, boy, isn't London like a weird place for an American to be? And I got to do all this like fish out of water material that like is no English person could ever get away with. But you, like, it's funny the same way as, like, any English guy at a bar in America. Like, everyone thinks you're hilarious because all you have to do is, like, complain about something in your accent and it's automatically funny. I got to experience that. And so I got, like, all the parts about comedy that, like, really fucking suck in the beginning. I got to skip a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's a, a sort of license that's afforded to... Uh, it's gonna say foreigners, but it's like I, even saying the word foreigners now feels like yeah, there's some stink on it. <laughs> like the foreigners have all the advantages, even in comedy. <laughs> yeah, coming over here, taking our jobs, Joe. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a sort of license that's given to to uh, foreigners, to to expats, to uh, Americans, Aussies, and so on um, when they come over and they do uh, stand up because we do have this sort of self-deprecating self-effacing sense of humor here where we actually quite like it when people come over and then say like you're fu-. like i saw a guy do um do material about a tube carriage and he's he was i think he was american and he was saying like yeah you know you have these buttons on the tube carriages that say open but you only put them there to fuck with the foreigners because everyone out all the all the brits know that the carriage door is open by themselves so then you right. just wait for the <laughs> foreigners to push the buttons. So you can all laugh at them you know mean-spirited and uh it was like it's a really you know kind of ish base level joke i'm not here to criticize but like it's kind of a simple joke but just the fact that it's coming from a different kind of walk of life a different perspective kind of gives yeah. it a little bit more oomph and it allows us to then look at ourselves and go like yeah we we are fucking ridiculous you know and there's there's comedic mileage in that you know yeah totally and so i'm excited that i get to do- i haven't got to tell any of that material in Wicked. like over over three years so i'm just like Great. Here comes my fucking uh, here comes my Lester Square joke. Here comes my uh, I don't know if I'll do this one. I do this joke about I, I was like on the I was on the tube today. I saw one of my favorite things on the London tube today. I saw for a race. I saw a race for an empty seat during rush hour. And the funny thing about it is that when you see the race for the empty seat during rush hour, what happens is whoever loses no, sorry, whoever wins, I'm forgetting my bet. Whoever wins has to pretend when it's English people, they have to pretend they never really wanted it in the first place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just like, oh, no, did you want, oh, sorry, uh, did you, uh, uh, and I just remember this, like, everyone being really sort of competitive in London because it's a big city, but acting like they weren't. Yeah, yeah. 
It's like that stiff upper lip thing. You just you can't let your true feelings show, Joe, you know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, best tube joke I heard so far. And obviously, like, the tube is a major part of London life. So it, it does crop up in a few people's routines. Best one I heard was from a guy called John Long. Uh, who oh, was, he's so funny. Yeah, I fucking love him. He's fucking great. And he did a joke. I don't know if he still does it. I get the feeling he does a lot cleaner material now, but I'm just going to trash his reputation now by like <laughs> bringing this out. But he did this joke where he was just like, oh, I got on the tube the other day and there was an advert up there and it was like a charity appeal thing. And it said like five out of 10 girls in this third world country uh, end up in marriages under the age of 10. And, uh, and then there's a pause for effect. And he's just like, and it just got me thinking, you know, why do girls always go for bad boys? Or like it's something like that. And like really fucking dark uh, and just taking that concept and twisting it around. But I was just like, oh, that's, I mean, that's dark. That's as not fuck. a tube joke though. <laughs> that's like, no, it's not. I mean, you're not laughing at like, uh, the joke isn't the tube. The joke isn't right. even <laughs> our behavior on the tube. It's fucking, it just happens to be set within the confines of I a mean, tube if you. If you, I don't know if you're a weed smoker or whatever it is, whatever your stimulant or not, whatever gets your brain flowing, right, of choice, and then yep. sit on the tube for like four hours, you could just write so much material. It's just, it's just such a great, yeah, centralized it's place, and it's so. That's another thing about London, right? Rich people still take the tube, like you have yeah. to. Um, so everyone. Ever, there's not one person in the audience who's like, oh, I don't take the tube. Every single person in the audience is taking the tube probably that day. Yeah. Yeah. And there's all all manner of stories that take place uh, on there, all, all different types of interaction. Like you would think, oh, you know, rush hour, maybe people get a bit angry at each other, like fighting for the seat, like you said. But then I've seen moments of love on the tube before, Joe. I've seen like... Like saw, human kindness or oh, mate, I will tell you a yeah. story now that you will say that has to be bullshit. But I swear to God, this happened in front of my eyes. Like I was sat, I had a, I had a couple of beers and I was sat in a, in a seat on the tube carriage and uh, this quite drunk guy gets on and there's a girl there who looks like she's just finished work and he's, you know, a bit slurry, a bit shaky. And she's standing there holding, like eating her chips and he like walks over to her and I'm thinking to myself like, oh no, you know, is he going to like harass her? Am of I going to have to step in? And I'm only a little guy, you know, I don't want to like get into altercations and people always say like, don't insert yourself. Like you could get stabbed. Is it worth, you know? So I'm immediately thinking, am I going to end up in the newspaper tomorrow? Is this how it starts? This is how it ends for me. And he, he walks up to her and he goes, um, he goes, uh, you're right. And she's like, um, yeah, uh, hi like that and he's like uh he goes can i uh can i have one of your chips and then she goes um all right and then he goes uh like so he eats one of the chips and then he like after he's like swallowed it he goes uh what's your name and i'm thinking to myself oh just leave her the fuck alone like she's obviously yeah. she's finished work you're drunk like how do you think this is going to end like she's just going to walk oh i can't wait to fuck you you fucking smelly drunk like it's not yeah. going to happen so just leave her like so i'm thinking like am i going to have to get up am i going to get beaten up what's happening and then he goes uh, can i have another chip and she's like um <laughs> all right and she gives him another chip and then I'm thinking it's any second now he's going to do something and then she's going to ask everyone for help or achieve. Or God. he's just going to very, very slowly continue to just be an uncomfortable presence. Just weird. Yeah. Taking it one step further every. Yeah. Yeah. And then he goes, so he's had two chips now. Now he goes, uh, he goes, what's your name? And then she goes, uh, uh, Emily or something. And he's like, oh, right, Emily. Um, I'm going to lean in and kiss you now. And then I'm thinking, oh, oh, fucking hell, here we go. And he leans in and he gets a little bit closer, a little bit closer, and then goes in for the kill. And she fucking kisses him back, Joe. I was like, oh, my fucking God, what is happening? What is happening? And I was like, "She's this has to be some sort of setup or like cameras are going to come out or so, like nothing happened. They got off the train together, walked off holding hands. I was like, this is like what okay so i don't want to completely ruin this story was it you, was there, you the drunk there guy? is there is one thing that happens 
that sometimes when women get put in this situation, they fight or flight says, I better just go along with this. Um, Now, it sounds like maybe this really did have a happy ending, and I'm just going to focus on that um, and and hope that, you know, this wasn't completely predicated on this woman fearing for her life. Now they have like three kids. Um, So we'll, we'll, we'll take that as positive. But yes, the tube is just just a smorgasbord of material and uh, 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 what is it that just people commonality. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it, it's like you said earlier, like all, like all walks of life, you could see different. It's basically like a sort of constantly changing globe theater stage. With yeah. A, like oh, a yeah, sure. Set of characters coming in at every stop. Sometimes you'll, you'll, I don't know if you're on the Piccadilly line, you might stop near central London and uh, a load of people in tuxedos will come and like they're off to the theater or the ballet or something. And then by the next stop, it's a load of, I don't know, East London kids with hoodies on and you're fearing. And you can, you can drink. Yes. Well, you could, I don't think you can anymore. You're not supposed to. Oh, I better, I better bone up on the new laws before I head over there and get get arrested well there was a thing a big thing uh in the evening standard a few years ago on the the day of or the last night of like before they outlawed it uh where people just went on the tube (laughs) just to get pissed you know you like that british sense of humor right like you just go well if you're gonna take it away from us let's let's have one last so good Uh, i was just saying what i loved about uh england was uh that when the weather's bad you drink and when the weather's good you drink it's just <laughs> it's just like always a reason yeah yeah i was doing a thing about that last week on on twitter but i've done it in stand-up as well like it's it's you know in in australia when the weather's nice it's like you know you take the aussie rules football you go down to the park and you throw it around maybe you have a a barbecue and in america it's like nice weather you know you take your baseball and you take your kid down to the park play a bit of catch or in in britain as soon as the sun like as soon as the weather gets above like 16 fucking degrees everyone's like let's get fucking shit hammered oh that's how the the joke goes it goes in the and when the weather's bad you drink when the weather's good you drink outside yes that's that's fuck i forgot my joke yes um yeah and you just fucking go to the shop and buy as many fucking cans of cider as you can hold and then you just go sit on the first piece of grass you can find yeah yeah people drunk people in the middle of the daytime people will willingly like they'll spend 10 months of the year judging homeless people for drinking outside and then (laughs) (laughs) the fucking second that it's like that there's all the tables are gone in the pub they're like yeah fuck it off i go <laughs> it's also the only country in the world i've ever been to where you can easily have a drunken hookup before it gets dark like it's just yeah like four or five in the afternoon is totally a fair game to like just make out with someone in a par on a nice sunny in a pub on a nice sunny day yeah well i think that comes from like the history of our licensing laws doesn't it like i think it was around someone's going to correct me on this i'm sure but my understanding or my recollection of having been told this stuff before is that around the time of the second world war with the blitz when there was like blacked out windows and all that uh they they shut all the pubs like early like half 10 11 o'clock and then the war ended but they never changed the licensing laws back and so that's why all these pubs close at 11 uh and we've never really snapped out of that culture even after they they actually relaxed the laws in um I think it's that and people are looking to catch a train home a lot of the time, right? So, like, something's going to happen. You got to make it happen early. Yeah. Like, this is my shot. <laughs> yeah. Nail this down. Also, can I ask you a, can sure. I ask you a legal question? Sorry. Yeah. Um, if I do a joke about Prince Andrew, is there is there any laws against that if I'm on stage in the UK? Um, I don't think so. I okay. Mean, I know that the free speech laws are not identical between the U.S. and the U.K. and that there are some things where you're restricted. I just want to make sure that if uh, here the joke goes like this. It goes, uh, hey, everybody, glad to be back here in the U.K. It's crazy, like crazy the way we pronounce the same words differently a lot of the time. Like, for example, in America, we say aluminum and you guys say aluminum. And in America, we say urinal and you guys say urinal. Right, America, we say pedophile, and you guys say Prince, <laughs> Prince Andrew. Andrew. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, can I go to jail for that? Uh, no, I think you'd be fine. 
I think okay. I think you'd be good. And even if there were some sort of risk to it, like maybe, you know, earlier we were talking about like how, you know, after the first laugh, then you become that guy and it's not yeah. a character. Maybe you just reverse out of that and just say, actually, I'm just a character called Joe Stapleton. Oh, right. On the stage, it's you a know? parody. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just reciting theatrical lines. It's not me. I heard a guy say this here five years ago. I'm just repeating that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think you'd be fine. I mean, I've said worse on Twitter. Okay. TikTok and shit. So I think you'd be okay. Okay, cool. Um, also, I don't know if you really get any. Do you get any legal recourse if you've literally paid your accuser to fuck off? I don't know if you get to say, I'm not a child molester if you had to pay the child to go away. Yeah, I don't know. Again, different different laws, right? Like in this country, it's like you're innocent until proven guilty. So if you can somehow avoid being proven guilty, then you're not allowed to ever say that person's guilty. I mean, again, the laws are different. here. You can say whatever you want about people. It's very difficult um, to prove uh, like a libel case in America as opposed to in the UK. Yeah. Super difficult. Yeah, we have quite... I think we're... Aren't we like the world capital of like of like i think so i was about to say of press freedom it's not press freedom it's like where you can literally i mean quite a prominent journalist carol codwallo has just um been going through been run through the mill with uh like a what they call it like a sort of slap order which is where they wrap uh legislation around a, a journalist and try basically try to bankrupt them and scare them off and get them to retract all their their work and i've heard that that is actually sort of typical of um british media british journalism and stuff um but having said that, I think you'll be fine. Okay, great. <laughs> that kid, I mean, there's a kid who just got sentenced to six weeks in jail for that racist tweet, right? Did you see that? I think that no. was in the UK. Really? Is that similar to the guy? Who was the guy that got, somebody got fucking jailed for something. This is about 10 or 12 years ago. And the, the judge or the magistrate actually said, this was in the UK. He said, I think that it clearly falls beneath the standards of offense or something like that and i remember reading this thinking like who gives a fuck like nobody <laughs> you can be like it's fine to be offended it's like there's there's a lot of stuff that people say that i find distasteful and disgusting yeah. and i don't think they should have said it but i would never like stop them from i mean that's the cliche it's isn't a, it the, you have the, the right the, to say the free, this, yeah the free speech conversation is is um at this point above my pay grade I want to normalize not having an opinion on something. I, I want to normalize being like, hey, I understand like why people like don't want to give a platform to Nazis. I also understand why uh, deplatforming people can be dangerous. Like, I don't know what the answer is. I, I don't, um, you know, I, do I love the fact that that someone who tweeted something racist that a soccer player is facing some repercussions? Yes. Do I love the fact that they're going to jail for six weeks? Not necessarily. <laughs> like, it seems like a bit draconian, doesn't it? Like, I feel like yes. shouldn't we have progressed a little bit further than than jailing people for nonviolent offenses? I feel like, however, what is what? OK, so I, I don't have an answer for this either. Let me throw this question out there, though. Sure. What is worse? Going to jail for six weeks um, assuming your safety is guaranteed and all that, right? But just having like a very unpleasant six weeks versus this kid never being able to get a job for the rest of his life, never being able to uh, to be to be uh, to be a social outcast for the rest of his life for being an idiot teenager. Um, which of those punishments would you rather have? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a shame to going to prison isn't there whereas if he right yeah go... no of course and those two things aren't mutually exclusive either right chances are what's going to happen is he's going to do the six weeks and still have a hard time for the rest of his life um yeah it, it's it's pretty it's just pretty wild um i'm just grateful that this shit didn't exist when i was a teenager i absolutely would have said some fucking real dumb stuff because i thought it was funny and i didn't understand the power of words um and uh, and now these <laughs> you know with with great power comes great responsibility and everyone has great power in their fucking hands 24 hours a day. Yeah. There was an onion article. Um, I don't know if you saw it, it was like last year or the year before where they said like every major like presidential candidate for the next 20 years rendered unelectable by their like social media profile. Yeah, right? like, I was like every human being. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of the same as like when people uh, spread that meme around and they say like, I'm just so glad that there weren't such a thing as like smartphones when I was a teenager fucking around. And it's true. Like it's, it's, 
I think there's a responsibility there on on parents and boomers or, you know, whatever you want to label the, the older uh, generations to understand, accept and respect that when you are that age, you don't necessarily understand the repercussions of everything that you're saying. I know that that seems like, oh, well, they should understand, you know, they're adults, they're 21 years old or 25 years old. But actually, when you cast your mind back to the stupid shit that you did when you were like 21, it kind of crystallizes a bit. It's like, fuck, I'm really glad that we didn't have smartphones then. And equally, on the 21-year-old or the 25-year-old side, they they do have to be more responsible. But it's a reciprocal thing. Like, everyone just needs to stand back, chill out, cool down and just be like, okay, sometimes we can be dickheads. <laughs> Sure, totally. And all I'll say is the counterpoint to like the stand back and chill out, which I, I do agree with, is that for some people, the one it's it's easy for us to say stand up and uh, sorry, stand back and chill out, because typically we're not the ones being hurt yeah. by the things that these folks are saying either. Right. So that's something I understand, too. It's like not really up to me to forgive someone for being racist. Yeah, because. Uh, it didn't affect me in the first place. So it's all a fucking mess, man. I'm just glad, dude, I don't have any kids and I party hard. So I'm only going to be here like another 10, 15 years tops. And cause I don't like, I'm good. Like where things are going, it's a mess. Yeah. It worries me. Like I I've been doing, I've been preparing for this blog. Uh, I'm going to put out, I might put it out this weekend or I might, might try and refine it and throw a few more sort of lighten the mood jokes into it but basically i've been looking into like peak oil and how the oil's going to run out and the oh. natural gas is going to run out and everyone thinks we can just switch to nuclear but there's not enough uranium <laughs> in the world to to power our way out of this and how like everyone's like oh uh, yeah well, we'll just have like windmills and like tidal machines and shit it's like what, what are you going to build them at like there's no actual coherent strategy to yeah. deal with the retirement of oil from our way of life and i think about this and i i research it and i read it and i'm like i've got two kids man i honestly don't oh, know oh i forgot you have kids yeah yeah like how like how bad is this how deathy is this gonna get you know? <laughs> i mean okay so now i'll be positive devil's advocate because this is what i'm good at yeah i mean earlier i gave you a story that could have like the tube the chips the girl and the guy like yeah that could have been a dark story and you put a positive Glee yes. so if you could cheer me up a little bit that'd be great yeah so uh your kids are probably wicked smart and so are most of the kids that exist right now and even though i don't want to use this as an excuse as to why we shouldn't change our fucking wretched ways human beings come up with some pretty fucking inventive ways uh when they have to uh, to do things and to fix things and to solve things. And we maybe can't even conceive yet of the solution to this problem. Like maybe somebody invents a nuclear reactor that like can just be in your house tomorrow. And, um, you know, we don't, I, and I think that that's a fallacy to like completely fall back on that. But, um, people are pretty smart and people are pretty innovative. I'm, I don't, I don't want to roll the dice on it, but hopefully, uh, they come up they come up good for you and your kids well that's very kind of you mate that's very kind um <laughs> but i also love the idea that you actually secretly know beneath the surface that we are fucked and that's why you're partying <laughs> hard yeah i uh, dude I, in general again i am on your side like i not your side uh, your side i guess would be wishing for a better tomorrow i'm on uh, i agree with you in that tomorrow's uh, a fucking real long shot at being any better than today is yeah, yeah. I mean, I sort of feel like if right, if I did not have kids, I'd be in your camp, like it probably in your hotel suite, knocking back the Jack Daniels with you, uh, thinking to myself this. In fact, I think Doug Stanhope put it best, like where he was like, he's got he's like, I've got no kids. I've bought my my shit tip house outright in it's by the border just so I don't have a fucking mortgage on it. And I, I think his phrase was like, I am fucking jumping off of this like spinning rock and treating it like the trashed up smashed rental car that it is <laughs> uh, i was like i wish i could have that fucking that freedom to know yeah. that nothing mattered you know so unfortunately you have to do everything in your power to stop it spinning patch up some of the holes and uh so that you or at least just extend the amount of time your kids have and tell them you that bloodline ends here <laughs> yeah yeah 
I mean, it's like, like I admire his honesty with it all, but then it's also, it's difficult to completely rule him out as the sort of guy that's like on the Titanic with a fucking, you know, drill, like deliberately, deliberately fucking smashing the floor of the Titanic, making it sink faster. But, um, but yeah, anyway, so what, where's this gig at next week? Let's talk about that. Uh, it's at a place called Malt Bar in Bermondsey. Malt Bar uh, um, in Bermondsey near London Bridge, I guess, right? Near London Bridge, yes. Uh, my pal Sam Dunthorne, it's, uh, he won't be there that night, but he's putting the show on. Sam's a guy I met when I lived in the UK. Love his comedy. Love his whole vibe. He's just such a sweet guy and really just loves comedy and um, uh, is very talented, too. Like musician, comedy sort of combo thing going on there. Had me on his podcast. Uh, and so, yeah, he gave me a gig. And uh, if people are poker fans and they want to come play poker on Wednesday night, uh, so I'll be at the, Hippod the London Hippodrome all week playing poker. Um, and Wednesday night, there's like a specific drinks happening at the bar, 6.30 p.m. Then we're going to the Prince Charles Cinema for a secret screening uh, of possibly a poker-related movie. And then uh, afterward, I'll be out having drinks that night as well. If there's anybody who uh, listens here, wants to come hang out and um, at the Hippodrome Wednesday night and or Friday night at Malt Bar in Bermondsey. Cool, man. And just to be super clear, so the Malt Bar, like when you're doing your stand up, that's not really like poker related. That's just kind of straight up observational stand up, right? Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. Yes. Yeah, sometimes poker fans are a little disappointed when they when they come to my stand up show and it's like not all poker material. I'm like, you get that all of the time for me. Yeah. Like, I got to don't you want to gotta do <laughs> exactly like I get to talk about this much stuff when I'm doing poker commentary. Now I get the whole world to talk about. It. You want me to talk about this again? No, thank you. I saw a couple of tweets the other day because Chris Rock, right, did a couple of gigs over the weekend and uh, was it over the weekend or maybe earlier on this week? Uh, and it was people complaining that in his stand-up gig, this is a sold-out hour show that's been in the diary for fucking months. And people yeah. were complaining, like, I thought he was going to, like, talk about Will Smith and Jada, but he barely fucking mentioned it. And I was like, you fucking idiot. Like, what? Like, do, yeah. you, do you think these people just walk on stage and they've got, like, an hour, like, they're just instantly funny? Like, it comes from nowhere. I mean, they really do. I th a lot of people really do think that. And I think a lot of these dodos went out and bought paid extra money for chris rock tickets i don't know if you saw but his his tickets went from like 95 to 400 dollars like really? on, on after secondary markets like they basically quadrupled um that's like you know the, i think the, they, the rarely heard plus side of getting slapped in the face right exactly <laughs> there but but the thing is he doesn't benefit from that it's only people that are selling them in the aftermarket anyway like uh, he's already made his money um and i think they all expected you know to get some sort of dish on what happened from him and, and for, you know, for him to open up and say something about it, which I think is naive. And also, yes, expecting people to have, you know, Chris Rock is going to come up with an hour or an hour and a half, a lot faster than the most of most of the rest of us. will. like, for example, I did, I did my first like 50 to 55 minute set back in January of this year. And they're like, we want to have you back next year. And I was like, I don't, I, I might have, 10 more minutes of material by next year, but it's going to be the very similar show. Like I can't go do an hour in front of the same audience two, two years in a row. It's just not how it works. Yeah. I mean, it takes time, man. It takes time to like hone and cry. I, I think to, to build an hour every year, you'd have to be out fucking like two gigs a night, three or four times a week, constantly writing, constantly crafting. Oh tweaking. yeah. Um, I mean, I did, I did a, 45 50 minute show in 2015 and it took me four years to write and you know decide which bits to put in there and because i i thought like oh fuck it like even like once we have kids I, I probably won't get a chance to do this so at least i'll always have this then yeah like, you know i worked and then worked up to it and like peaked and filmed it and and it's all good uh but i don't know how fucking long it would take me to do something like that again i guess it probably it probably gets easier the more you do it right yeah, you would know you would have the experience of knowing like what parts were helpful and what you were spinning your wheels and how much less time you could use to do it for sure. Um, and you would have more confidence to use less tested material, I think, too. Like, you know, I, I know now what's good enough. Uh, even yeah. in my head, right? I'm like, okay, I could bury this in the middle of the set, even if I've only done it a few times. 
it's not like I would need to go do this for a whole year to to know that this particular joke works. Yeah, and it's also like the the example that you told earlier, like where once you like a, a first timer or somebody in their first year who tries something a little bit out of their comfort zone if it didn't work they would be super tempted to just abandon that and be like oh well i was i, I was treading over what actually works with stand-up yep whereas totally. once you're like five years deep or you know 10 years uh you would just know you'd be like i fucking know there's something in it i'm gonna stick with it and uh, and as you said earlier, like you just, you know, you spend enough time tweaking it, crafting it. And eventually, hopefully, in theory, you get the payoff, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, listen, Joe, we've we've gone over an hour. This has been lots of fun. Um, thanks very much for, for jumping on. Um, anyone that's listening or watching on the live stream, um, obviously go and follow Joe on Twitter. He's at Stapes, S-T-A-P-E-S. Um, he mentioned that he's at the Malt Bar uh, in Bermondsey. That's next Friday. And uh, I will be back next friday uh speaking to an old comedy friend again um by the name of james benison uh so stay tuned and uh, i'll catch up with you all soon thanks a lot for tuning in cheerio (laughs) 